0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. we got a special treat for you today, the one and only Matthew Arrett. You can find him over at uh, the CanadianPatriot.org, the RisingTideFoundation.net. You can check him out on Substack forward slash Matthew Arrett. He's written multiple books. I think the latest one is, the, is, I could be getting this wrong, but The Symphony of Two Americas, was that previously written or is that one of the newer ones or kind of. It's a, it's
1: a, it's a hybrid. It's a, it's the Clash of the Two Americas, the okay. uh, first volume, and it's the Unfinished Symphony. Um, so that's volume one of four. And then okay. the most recent one is, uh, here actually, it was...
0: Yeah, let's check it out.
1: Yeah, it's right here, actually. It's uh, Clash of the Two Americas, volume four, The Anglo-American Roots of the Deep States, which uh, was co-authored by my wife, as she's co-authored all of the books uh, with me, um, with a little picture of the uh, St. Mark's line of Venice there represent the old Venetian empire and then the uh, synthesis of the the British flag and the American flag obviously so just to give people a sense of like what is this oligarchy we talk about deep state well what is that terminology you know what does it actually mean because people are very confused about well what do you mean when you say the word what do you mean when you say the word is it like shadowy corporations is it is it davos is it intelligence like what is it so is it china And is it russia that's the, are the you know that, that ran russia gate that that are running the us deep state to, to overthrow democracy. No. So, you know, we, we tried to give people a a broader historic, um, context of like what the nature of oligarchism is since no part of history could be understood without an appreciation for the existence of a, a continuity of an oligarchical agency that operates in a very similar way, although modifies its techniques over time, going back to ancient Babylon. So what is it? How does it work? How did it transmogrify from Rome to Venice to, to the British Empire? And, and what is its current manifestation today? Since it's not really just the United States took over and now is the U.S. Empire and there's no more British Empire. It's not that at all. There's something which has been working since really JFK was murdered and before that to, to undo the republic itself. Or what, whatever was viable and good from the U.S. American revolutionary experience. There's been an effort to undermine it from the outside and from from traitors within building up fifth columns and it has not nothing to do as far as like (laughs) when people say oh is it russia or is it china who are our enemies no these nations these civilizations are targeted just as much as they've targeted the the people in the the nations of europe and north america it's it's not it's not nation state based it's something more than that and uh, so we tried to really just put some meat on the bones and demystify it a little bit
0: yeah it seems like uh, it's a it's a, a pretty big labor to do because it goes back so far. You know, you've written, I've, I've read a little bit of the books. I've failed to read one in its entirety. And I, I apologize for that. I should have, I should have done that before we spoke because that makes me look like a knucklehead that being said, you know, I, I've seen tons of interviews and it seems that the research you guys have done on, on these, this particular structure that seems to have its hooks into all the civilizations. It goes back to the road scholars. It goes back to Khazaria and, how like how how did you get before we start getting into the story what was it that piqued your interest that wanted you to start digging in and finding out more about this
1: i guess the thing that that put me in a in a more active versus passive consumption mindset
0: yeah.
1: was um was 911 you know that that was that was for me like it, it shook me you know before that i i had typical you know left leaning opinions about corporate you know critiques and things like that and war bad, you know, but it still wasn't what, very sophisticated and it was still a little bit. Um, yeah, it was, it was superficial. I ultimately was perfectly happy just living my life the way I was living it, knowing this trivia and having opinions that I had about corporations being bad, but it, what, who cares? Um, but that for me, the nine 11 was the big, the big thing that really shattered my, uh, my comfort zone, um, and made it a lot of, a, a lot more real. um, And then from there, you know, I I think this is a common theme from a lot of people I've encountered. That was a big wake-up call from tons of folks Mm -hmm. um, in a similar fashion that the whole COVID weirdness of the last three years has been another big shocking wake-up for a lot of other people more recently. You know, you get these spurts of, 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 I don't like using the term waking up. (laughs) And it was when I started, you know... um, um, Trying to figure out, well, this didn't arise out of the vacuum. Like, obviously, this is a complex process that that was undertaken to make this false flag happen that justified all of these dystopic uh, policies, both that destroyed millions of lives in the, in the Middle East, but also expanded a massive surveillance state uh, inside of the United States and so much more. Um, so where did that come from? So, you know, you, you dig and you dig and you're starting to get now more into some, some drama of history. So that took me into, um, an appreciation for history as shaped by international bankers working to subvert mm-hmm. and enslave. But again, it, it was, a, it, it lacked, um, positive solution. Like I didn't have a, in, in music, you know, you have counterpoint, you got multiple voices, you got one voice, you got another voice musically playing off each other. Mm-hmm. I only had the, the dark voice, kind of like Black Belt. So I was like, at a certain point, getting very depressed. But then the, the paradox is always like, well, but then why do they have to kill people like John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Lincoln? Uh, why do people, great people often have to get assassinated if they have this much power? So that was, for me, my counterpoint. I, I started really just deciding to focus on the good. Like, what is it in humanity that has resulted in these bursts of goodness, of progress, emancipation? Why are we not still enslaved why are we not still feudal serfs in a plantation like in we we, like in the medieval period so then that that became more of an obsessive focus for me is like what about those moments when it could have gotten a lot worse but instead um human humanity was able to resist and create positive results for our progeny so then that that was like the healthy thing that i needed and um the the i was given um, a, help, a big assist by beginning to discover the works of Lyndon LaRouche, the, the late American economist who I, I speak a lot about. Um, I found his, his research and the, the networks of researchers that he built up since the 70s to be really, really useful at just helping to, to solidify those foundations of like, well, what were these um, better traditions of Western civilization that were not just rapacious, just exploitative, col- you know, colonizing and bad? What about the good ones? What about the good traditions that have been suppressed? Um, so that that was very empowering for me. Gave me a, a lot more of a clearer sense, not only of, of of the past, but also thus of the future. Like, what what are the pathways that could function to bring us out of the the storm? Which obviously was not something that should have surprised people. You know. So uh, yeah, that's 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 sort of it. Those in, in short.
0: Yeah. So it it sounds it sounds to me like discovering the writings of Lennon LaRouche was what gave you the courage to go back into the cave.
1: I think so. That's a great great way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 fascinating to me. And I like the idea. One one of many things that I like listening to you and reading your articles is that you're really good at identifying these different patterns that seem to be repeating. And I love the I love that you focus and shine a spotlight on the people that were breaking the chains of the slavery that was thrust upon people, whether it was JFK trying to build this transcontinental railroad from Alaska coming all the way down. And you know, it seems to me at one point in time, the United States was actually trying to do what maybe – the unipolar world is trying to do right now and is kind of trying to recreate like a a real commerce or something like that. Can you maybe share with my audience what it was those guys were doing by trying to, you know, unite Russia and China and tell that story?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, this is, this is, um, this is a fascinating story and for a Canadian, um, I mean, I'm in Canada, I run the Canadian Patriot, um, magazine and I set that up in 2012. And so it's, it's especially important for us, but it's important for everybody, uh, living in North America, and and the thing that I was trying to understand was, uh, well, what? Why are we the only monarchy of the Americas? Right, like, why is Canada still, even to this very day, um, based upon hereditary institutions with a privy council, lieutenant governors appointed by the crown, representing crown agencies within each province, within a with a governor general at the top, um, representing who's the official head of state of Canada. People think it's like Justin Trudeau or Harper or, or, you know, no, 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 no. That's a prime minister. The, 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 you know, the, the the top minister, that's all it is. The actual official head of state is still the sitting crown, whoever that might be, who uh, Justin and every prime minister has to pledge allegiance to, as they also are inducted into the privy council, which is where they also have to take oaths of secrecy to keep things secret that a good servant ought to keep uh, for her majesty or his majesty, that's actually a, that's that. I'm not even paraphrasing. That's literally that's what they crazy. all say, and I'm like, "Well, what the hell is this?" Because at the time, you know, 2012, I was still a full time uh, volunteer with the LaRouche organization, which had at the time a small office in Montreal, and we were organizing for a variety of policies uh, with the population. You know, we part of what I was doing involved going out with with political tables and signage and literature and trying to talk to strangers about big ideas, and it was a good exercise, really good exercise, but very a little bit alienating too, because you're using, you're representing an American agency within Canada talking about doing these American actions. Like we got to get Congress to pass, you know, Glass-Steagall break up the banks and I'm, and, you know, sounds all great. And, you know, Canadians who are better people would agree with that, but then it's like, but what do I do? Like, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm, I'm in Ontario or in Quebec. Like, what do you, you want me to call up a U.S. congressman? Is that what you're asking? (laughs) I was like, I don't know what I'm asking you, I guess. uh, (laughs) So, you know, like there was a there was a disconnect. And and so I was a younger person. A few other people felt the same way, obviously, who are a bit younger. And uh, we're like, we got to figure out Canada. And nobody really did the work. So we started um, with a few of these anomalies, why we didn't join the American Revolution back when when Ben Franklin was up in Canada in 1776. He was up here in April for for like five weeks trying to organize to get Quebec to become the 14th colony, saying together, we will declare independence. Why didn't we accept that? What were the operations that subverted his allies who felt strongly about joining the US cause against Britain? Um, So what's that story about? Can we we find out? Uh, What about the story of like, well, what about Lincoln's allies at a time when Lincoln was doing so much to keep the Union intact in opposition to a British instigated um, civil war and and you could prove that I mean I, that, that was sufficiently proven in my mind that the British were very much behind the the dissolution of the. US uh, back in the 1860s utilizing of course their fifth colonists in the US what have you. but despite that, Lincoln kept it kept he maintained it he had some help from the Russians he had also some help from from allies in Canada. People like Isaac Buchanan um, was a, was a leading figure in Canada at the time, who was a, a major political powerhouse, and who organized to um, ensure neutrality. He you know he made the point that if Britain declares war, which we, they were about to do in 1863, he's like Canada's Canada must stay neutral. We're we're not going to join in and fight Lincoln. Um, so you know you had all of these things, and I'm like I was thinking, well, why didn't why didn't his his network continue to stay in power after Lincoln died? What, how were they purged, um, and why did the British traders and agents become the dominant figures who then shaped our what became our constitution, our our, our acts of confederation, um, which enshrined a deep state with a privy council at the center command of the entire new nation of Canada, and so all of these questions, you know. Yeah. So to get this gets at your question regarding the, the transcontinental railway, the link between the United States through uh, British Columbia, Alaska into uh, Russia and down into China, into Asia, into the Middle East, into <laughs> Africa, which uh, was a very serious um, policy that a lot of leading statesmen in the late part of the 1800s were thinking about and moving towards. Why didn't that happen? So this this formed the basis of volume 1 uh, no sorry volume 2 of the untold history of canada book series so i did before i got to this book series on the clash of the two americas i did a four volume book series on the untold history of canada and so volume 2 showed that story and and it, and it involved discovering that Lincoln's transcontinental railway was never intended to just be like connect the Pacific with the Atlantic um, by rail, which was an amazing milestone in in human civilization. It never was done before. And what it did, people underestimate this, but it gave for the first time um, a sovereign nation the ability to break free of the British controlled uh, monopoly over maritime trading. And that's how Britain maintained itself as this tiny little island that controlled 24% of the world landmass. You know, the sun never sets. They control India. So much of the China economy was like dominated by the British. Um, Big chunks of Africa. So how do they do that? Well, again, you control maritime choke points. You don't have to control everything. You just know where like the Straits of Gibraltar, you look at the the Horn of Africa, the Straits of Malacca. You know, there's only like eight or nine different choke points that you have to have strategic control over and you can maintain dependencies everywhere and manage wars and everything else. So now, with rail, as you develop inland, you're you're free. You could start developing your local industry. You could develop uh, local communication lines and, and trade within your own country. Powerful, and it was never supposed to end there. So Lincoln began it in 1863. He finished it in eighteen 1869. Well, it, it was finished in 1869. And uh, and there's a bunch of anomalies that all happen around the same time. You know, like uh, anomaly number one, like. Um, 1867 was the year that uh, the Alaska purchase was made uh, by Lincoln's leading um, surviving allies like uh, William Seward, the, the Secretary of State, who brokered this behind the scenes completely off the record. It was a big surprise deal where Russia sold for $7 million, Alaska, former Russian possession, right after Russia had saved the United States from dissolution. So the Russians and the Americans at the time had much more in harmony with each other. They understood each other very well. And they both understood the nature of this oligarchy centered in London. Now, number two is that was around the exact same moment, about a month. The Alaska Purchase happened one month before the British North America Act that created the Confederation of Canada was consolidated and signed off into law in London, which, you know, what involved basically four provinces. Most of Canada was uh, Hudson Bay private land, like 80% of Canada that we know of today. Most of that was just private Hudson Bay. It was called Rupert's land. Hmm. Um, so that, that well, it was a weird map when you look at Canada back in that time. So you have a little bit on the, on the East coast that became then confederate confederated under like, you know, some form of like unified policy under, under crown. But then you had this, this separation with British Columbia as a separate colony right above California, Oregon, you know, and, uh, and that was another separate colony, no trade, no commerce with the East, no other connection with the rest of the British Empire. Most of their commerce and trade and identity uh, was located in their neighbors in Oregon and California. So most people at the time wanted in, in British Columbia, um, especially at a time of economic uh, despair, which is what it was, the gold rush bubble, the bub- you know, there's there a big economic boom and a bubble that, that popped in the gold rush of the 1850s. So there was complete debt riddenness, uh, poverty, and people just wanted to get life back on track. Trade with with California was all they had. And so there was a big movement um, to, to join the United States. And the idea was that Lincoln's Railway was going to then continue up, bring bring even more trade commerce through British Columbia that would then intersect into uh, into Alaska, which was designed to be a new northern metropolitan zone with a lot of like mining development interests, but also with an idea of Arctic development and telegraph lines were being set up to go across the Bering Strait with rail that would then connect into, into Russia. And at the same time, you know, the the ball was being put into motion with Lincoln's, the the Lincoln uh, admirers like Sergei Vita and, and many other Russians in Russia who were, who was the finance and transport minister of Russia, close, close ally of the, of the better Americans who work, um, getting assistance from the Philadelphia Baldwin locomotives, which produced all of the rail cars that were then uh, running on the Trans-Siberian Railway, which then, you know, is a 9,000-kilometer railway in in Russia uh, that was built up under the American model with American engineers, American economists, American industries supplying um, in friendship this development strategy for Russia, which themselves, you know, they had only in 1860, right? They had also... Abolished uh, slavery under the uh, the abolition of the serfdom. 25 million serfs went free under Tsar Nicholas the, uh, Alexander II, another assassinated great leader who was allied with Lincoln, and both of them were were the called the Great Emancipators. One of Russia, one of America. So a lot of points of synergy, and yeah. um, and so all of the momentum was to to do this to build the Bering Strait rail tunnel. You see maps um, by people like William Gilpin that I've cited a lot. Um, the first governor of Colorado territory that, that largely saved the union during the civil war. He was the governor at a time when the South was going to open up, a um, what's called the Western front and Colorado was a strategic battle zone there. And, and. Lincoln couldn't handle it. You know, he had to deal with terrorist activities being launched from Montreal and from Toronto where the Confederacy was granted massive basing operations by the British who wanted to assist them any way possible to run terrorist activity against Lincoln from the north. That was the intel- the Confederate Secret Service was, was heavily active in Montreal where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Lincoln had a two front war and all of a sudden now they were going to open up a third front. So Gilpin had to be like he found himself. Luckily, he he was a competent guy. And uh, he was Lincoln's former bodyguard. Lincoln trusted him so much, he saved Lincoln's life when Lincoln was uh, on his way from Illinois to California. Uh, sorry, it, from Illinois to Washington. And uh, there were a couple of assassination attempts, which uh, Gilpin and uh, an elite 11-man um, bodyguard had uh, subverted. So Lincoln really trusted this guy. He, was, he had him camped out in the White House for like 100 days <laughs> in those very first moments after the inauguration. And he's like, okay, you you're going to be governor of Colorado. And so what he does, Gilpin... Right when the 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 Southern slave powers opening up that that Western front, they need to win Colorado. They they you know he basically, um, with no revenue, no funds, he basically uses a, a state version of Lincoln's greenbacks because he, he knew that Lincoln was going to do the greenbacks, the the U.S. Treasury bonds that would be then monetized in the form of, um, you know, a local U national controlled mint instead of private banks giving you. Uh, loans or or issue or controlling your currency emissions. So he did that. He paid his his militias, he he bought the supplies, everything, and and did some serious battles, like the Battle of Glorietta Pass, to subdue and, and destroy the southern um powers, which they, they they he beat them back successfully. Um, So he saved the Union there. He did so much and then he became the champion of the world this this Bering Strait land bridge that was been and he called in his book on the Cosmopolitan Railway for um, national banking protective tariffs creating these customs unions the way you know th- this is the way it was going and um so again like why did that get subverted um so that that book volume 2 of the untold history of Canada tells that story how Br- how British Columbia was was um how one of its key leaders was killed in order to um, the governor, actually, an irony, it was, it was a, a British um, governor named uh, Frederick Seymour, who was uh, a friend of America, but he was a British governor of British Columbia, but he was protecting the annexation movement and giving them the, as much space as they as they needed to uh, to join to join the union. And uh, at a certain point when it was realized what exactly it was that he was doing, he was sent off to the north to try to resolve some like native uh, Indian dispute. And uh, he was probably poisoned. He came back dead anyway. Mm. And then his enemies were brought in and immediately British Columbia, they had their debts forgiven by the British Empire. They were bribed. They were promised a, a railway from the east to the west so that we would finally give you trade. It took them like 15 years to do it, but they promised it. And Britain had to then buy up for pennies on the dollar the Hudson Bay land. So that big private region of, of Rupert's land I was telling you about was immediately at that same time bought up by the British Empire, given to Canada. And now that's why today's Canadian map is what it is. And it was then made more possible to build the type uh-huh. of rail connections that we ended up building in, in the 1870s later on. But it, it, it created sort of um, a wedge between the danger of a U.S.-Russia friendship. And that—that's been Canada's role primarily for most of the next 140 years. Has been a wedge to disrupt the possible danger of mm. Eurasian-American collabor- collaboration, especially with the Arctic. So that's part of our our sick history. And better Canadians in the in the 20th century fought against this. Better Americans like Franklin Roosevelt, Henry Wallace, uh, during World War II were trying to work with their allies in canada and they had a lot of allies in world war ii in canada who were very good people later later on purged who were all trying to revive this arctic development bering strait rail tunnel um program which that's more volume uh, two of the clash of the two americas that that story is told at length but yeah, and this is what JFK was sort of reviving. I don't think he had a necessarily the plan for the, the for the the, the Arctic uh, Bering Strait rail tunnel, but he certainly had a program for continental development and friendship with Russia. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: That thank you. That's really well said and I I think that sheds a lot of light on understanding the American Russian divide because I think we're so similar. And when you, like I know some Russian people they're like the the most hardworking, some of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. And I think that there's so much in common between the people of Russia, the people of Canada, and the people of America, probably the people in the world. But we're just forced upon, it's forced upon us this wedge of division. And maybe it comes down to resources. Maybe it comes down to banking. And this idea of banking, I got a question that I've been thinking about when we're speaking of resources, choke points, and relationships. It seems to me what's happening in the Ukraine at least on some level that I've read in the, in the papers is that all of a sudden you're starting to see these contracts come out with Vanguard and BlackRock. They have got all these connections to rebuild Ukraine. And it just seems that if, it it just seems to me that if, you know, we're talking about Russia building these tanks and moving forward, it seems to me maybe some of this terrorism that we see in our country, whether these trains being derailed as terrorism or these food processing plants going down as terrorism. It seems to me maybe this is some sort of arm twisting to try to get America to send jets over to Ukraine. Because I think if Russia continues to take back the territory, then all of a sudden all those contracts by Vanguard and BlackRock are null and void, right? If Russia takes back that territory, the contracts to rebuild that area Will no longer go to the banking, and and that that seems to me to be a pattern that happens in all world wars. It's like these bankers; they have all these reconstruction plans. They got money on both sides, and so they're funding both sides. I know that was kind of a shotgun out the back door with just a lot of stuff. But is there a connection there with the the, the financial system kind of collapsing, the banks, the Ukraine, and this sort of weird eco terrorism that's happened? And is that all connected? Hmm. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean,
1: I it's there's never really when when you're thinking about um, these types of geopolitical dynamics, it's it's always important to not approach it um, mechanistically. And by that, what I mean is, you know, the idea that well, the 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 the, the naive but yet popularized me- me- mechanistic approach to thinking about causation is like like, um, why did this book fall? Right? <laughs> why did that book fall? Well, the the, mecha- the, the mechanist would say, well, it's because uh, you opened your hand and then it fell. It's like, well, why did I open my hand? Well, the mechanist would say, well, it's because you flexed your, or you unflexed your muscles at a certain dimension, a certain tension that could be charted on this on this chart. Why did that happen? Well, it's because there were these electric currents that went through your, your brain that, that induced a certain like synaptic activity in the brain that resulted in the nerves transferring information through the muscles that, and it would go on forever. It would right. be an infinite like purgatory of just always another thing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so it's very linear, um, and it, and it, it is, it is material, hyper materialistic in the sense, and it, and it could thus never understand real causation because r- real causation was like sim- something much more simple. It was like, I'm trying to make a point to you and that, that idea, that intention that I have, which c- it, no computer can ever chart my idea, my intention, it's metaphysical, it's mm-hmm. transcendental, but it's still shaping and causing my body and my motion and my words and my sounds. And, and it's causing, you know, you, you to receive it over this weird medium of, of light EM, you know, emissions from our, our cameras and our microphones. Uh, fun stuff. I mean, it blows the mind when you really just think think in a childlike way about this stuff. It's cool. But all that to say, like, it's so simple. It was just like an intention, and idea caused that to happen. That's simple. Simple, non-mechanistic answer. Um, so when, when a lot of people who act like they have a lot to say about um, geopolitics, often when you when you watch them and, and it's useful to look at the mechanics of what's going on in, in Ukraine or regarding the bizarre, you know, hazardous waste uh, yeah. spills caused by train derailments and fertilizer uh, companies blowing up and all this other weird <laughs> stuff going on, like it's definitely useful to know mechanics. Don't get me wrong. Or like 9-11 buildings going down and the third building went down, no plane. Like, so like, it's good. Like, don't, don't, I'm not saying be lazy, like look right. at the mechanics, but they often stop short. And then what happens is um, they, they they miss the causal agency um, and, and oligarchs and, and intentions mm. generally never just do any one thing for one effect. They, they, there's always usually multiple uh, layers to right. the effects yeah. of any type of serious intervention. So and that's dynamics. So that's just that's the fact of like the, dy- the real dynamics shaping all of the human experience. And it always will be like that. So it's, it, but it takes a little bit of retraining. And I, I had to like sort of retrain my, my mind o- over time to just sort of think in a dynamic way. Like, don't try to look for every single, like literal smoking gun. Cause you're never going to have a full, whole answer of anything that couldn't be known better. Um, uh, but you could still know things don't, you know, so don't, don't just because you can't know everything perfectly doesn't mean you should throw away the idea that you could know anything, which is what a lot of people mistake when they become absolute relative relative saying, you know. I have become so wise that I know that nothing exists, or that there is no good or evil, and that's why I'm now a wise person. And that's all. That's also a bit of a reactionary mistake to make, um, you know. So, <clears throat> I all I'm saying here regarding the the trains, the eco terrorist um, activity, which is definitely the case, and mm. or BlackRock, the manipulations in Ukraine, and the danger of like uh, Russia actually coming out on top arranging, arranging the terms of peace on their, on their terms and not mm-hmm. on those of the Brussels Washington click. Um, so the way I'm thinking about it partially is, uh, okay, well, do we know for a fact, hundred percent of the details of the sabotage of the food processing plants mm-hmm. and fertilizer plants and the, and these four, four train, um, disasters. No, I don't, I, we don't know the names. We don't know exactly the details of like what type of eco-anarcho-eco right. terror group was launched? We don't know that, and we have to admit what well, we don't know. But does it smell like it? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, does it fit an mo, a, a modus operandi? Um, do I know of such eco-anarchists that are t- uh, eco-actually eco-terrorists uh, that are that are tied to things like Extinction Rebellion or the, uh, the 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 the? There's a Canadian group called Deep Green Resistance. That's mm. actually California, Canada-based. Yeah, they talk about it on their. You can go to their website. You can go to their literature. Read their stuff. They just they've got a whole moral, legal, ideological justification that they have crafted for the above grounders who will declare war on industrial civilization on, in, from the the establishment and will infiltrate. And they've been doing this for many decades, um, banking, business, government, and will try to do it in an above ground way. And then the, the below grounders will be those who actually declare hard kinetic war on the basis of industrial civilization attacking dams and, and energy energy systems, water systems, food. They've said it. They talk about it. Um, I've seen no evidence that they don't do those things they say they want to do and talk about and have organized membership around the world for. I've seen, you know, so there's that. Um, do they know what they're what they're doing? Like, do they know how they're being used? No, I think they're useful idiots. They're, they've been processed in a, in a radicalizing educational mm. system uh, that is designed to create self-hating humans who think that we're a virus. And what do you do when you have a virus destroying a host? Well, if you if if you really care about the host, aka in this case, Gaia, Earth Mother, Goddess, you know, uh, <laughs> that that's being killed by everything humans do. Well, then you want to destroy the virus, right? So it's 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 not that difficult of a of a set of logical steps to become um a unibomber like a, you know this is what ted kaczynski was was doing when he was sending out his 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 letter bombs for decades it's not like he was just some sociopath with no morality sending these bombs he had a whole thing in his head um probably helped to it it, it helped to put this stuff in his head when he was part of an MK Ultra operation as a talented student at Harvard, of course, in the 50s. But despite that, whatever the hell they did to him, he came out of it with a complex of being a self-hating misanthrope who believed that human beings and technology could only destroy our own freedom by allowing technology to grow. So he had this formula, you know, where which looks like this, right? Like um, technology increases, freedoms decrease, mm-hmm. right? That's the formula that he was um, radicalized around. And so if you love freedom, you have to stop technology. And so he sent his bombs to who? Well, people who he identified as being responsible for the growth of new technology. People who were like, you know, leaders of various industries or research and development groups, things like that. And, you know... (sighs) He injured something like 40 people, killed a bunch, uh, finally turned himself in, had a whole like you know thesis published in the Washington. I think it was the Washington Post, I want to say, um, with his whole manifesto on why industrial civilization must be destroyed. The, he this became an organizing tool in the 90s, this manifesto uh, to, to shape and give uh, direction to a whole new a new generation, a new breed of these uh, eco activists who would be more than more than just simply saving nature they would be pe- people who shared his his heart and mind on targeting the means by which human population grows as a virus meaning food production anything that causes abundance um that that all had to be destroyed and and some of the founders of the deep green resistance movement i had referenced uh, one of them i the very least i know was a direct correspondent with his uh, kazinski the the unibomber in while, while this guy was in prison um so you got that stuff. Then you got the whole like BlackRock. Like, what does Larry think? What is BlackRock? What is Vanguard? Are they just like private enterprises in it for making capital gains for profit? No, not wow. at all. Not at all. They're they're part of they're one of many geopolitical instruments created not for making money, but for managing a system. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. how is it that Larry Fink is the position in the position that he's in does he care just about money no larry Fink is a world economic forum young leader he's part of the whole like deep green um ideologue crowd that has signed on to you know all of these central banker climate compacts um he believes in this transhumanist sort of post-industrial um organizing of society so of course like just like george soros he has a psych profile not too contaminated with pesky things like conscience you know so he's useful he's granted certain uh authorities to to be in charge of certain um things like in this case BlackRock um in order to gobble up for his masters his handlers as much real estate everything else that he could possibly do Bill Gates was assigned a similar role as as himself being just another synthetic cardboard cutout as was Jeff Bezos, as was Elon Musk, these people just, you know, it's not like they have any deep character. They're selected early on to be front men because you can't just do things. If you're an oligarch representing one of these like old uh, family uh, bloodlines, you're not you can't just go and do things in your own name. You need degrees of separation. You need courtiers, right, to to carry mercenaries to carry out your desire as your instrument, your auxiliaries. So that's what these guys are. That's all they are and in some cases they create little dramas to you know distract the the plebs you know between like Bezos versus Musk or you know it, it's just it's it's just soap opera stuff though like they're all part of the same operation from the top and yeah they ultimately want to dominate um the physical economy the the means of production that's the key thing cuz while they got everybody distracted for the past 50 years on worshipping, mm-hmm. And, and market fluctuations and speculative instruments and all this crap—they always knew that the thing that has the real value is the thing that we all live in: the infrastructure, the water management, the food production. Like, yeah. that's what they—that's what they've been working at, trying to corral and take control of, so that they could then decide who gets what, who gets to live, who doesn't, with diminishing returns. That they—they they create that scarcity, right, and right. they can decide the triage themselves on their terms. So, Ukraine—they've already killed off like you know three hundred thousand young Ukrainian men under the last 1 year of a proxy war against Russia that's already been sacrificed they're willing to kill all of the Ukrainian people and i think frankly they kind of wouldn't mind if all the Ukrainian actual indigenous Ukrainian uh people just died so they could just control that zone for um you know the 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 type of i mean there's a lot of some of the biggest um Food production, um, areas in the world are in East Ukraine, um, or West Ukraine. Too. But Ukraine has huge, huge food production, minerals, resources, a lot of good, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in, in Ukraine. They would like to just control as a, as a slave colony. Um, they definitely want to have Russia as a slave colony. That's, that's what Hitler was assigned to do was like destroy Russia, turn Russia into a slave colony with the dirty Untermention Slavs, which they see as like subhuman, um right you know just like Africans they wanted to like what what did Hitler want if he was successful well he and his Anglo-American counterparts who were all equally happy to you know manage a one world government wanted Africa as well to be a big slave colony they wanted China to be a slave colony with their you know they, they they were able to they were happy to allow the Japanese who they also don't like they think that they think the Japanese are genetically inferior but they're more than happy to 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 uh work with um those those japanese fascists who have a, a an un, unbalanced samurai romanticism ethos <laughs> uh, as you know, local asian enforcers that was they were happy to have that that carved up in in local jurisdictions right um but but so hitler wasn't gonna just like go away if you won the war he was gonna meet ma- like manage part of a global world government under a banker's dictatorship with slave colonies at different parts of the world. Most of South America was going to be a slave colony. So that's sort of what they want to redo today because it didn't work back in the 1940s. It it was aborted. This thing didn't work the way their their beautiful New World Order designs that they put so much effort and care into harvesting when it actually, when the seed sprouted, it was like this, unex, it, it was like <laughs> their, their ivory tower models did not account for what was coming out of that seed. <laughs> Which is like, you know, remember that that movie, uh, Little Shop of Horrors?
0: Yeah, I do. Seymour, feed me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> they did not expect this plant to like start like like snapping. Yeah. It. It's like, oh, blood. <laughs> um, but so they had to abort it. Now they're trying it again, but the same sorts of problems are happening. The reality is not acting in accord of with their script of what this clean, you know, new world order was supposed to be. This clean fascism not working out that way. So uh, yeah, I, I, there's definite connections because ultimately the common theme is in both the case of uh, the original New World Order attempt under under Hitler, it was to impose a transhuman, aka at the time it was called eugenics, as the the governing <laughs> science of the master class that would then depopulate the world, keeping only those slaves alive who would be working in the mines to service mm-hmm. the, uh, the 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 unter, the uber mention the the above humans uh, or more than humans. <clears throat> and uh that that's sort of what the the green movement unfortunately when you start looking at the origins of the modern green movement um from the 60s onward especially it was all of the same unrepentant nazi supporters like prince bernhard of the netherlands who was a co-founder of the the world wildlife fund along with julian huxley the president of the eugenic society of britain who were co-founders of the not well the World Wildlife Fund of Nature in the 1960s but Julian Huxley was the god the, the actual grandfather of modern environmentalism when he created the International Conservation inter, or conservation the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in 1947 um, as part of what he even says is going to be something that has to redirect the human values from being protecting humans against empire which is formerly what the dominant value structure was is like protect humans from empire uh prote- protect humans from war and starvation, you know, those are good values. And he says, no, we have to redirect the value system towards protect nature from humans. And so the, the, the way that the mechanism was going to be to revive this like ancient pagan uh, Gaia worship cult that animated so much of the worst ugliness of the Roman empire and give it some scientific pro or proto scientific veneer uh, or pseudo scientific veneer, I should say um, around Computer modeling that could justify that some human economic activity of some sort, they haven't decided yet in the 50s what it was going to be, was going to be attributed to some form of destruction in nature. And they ultimately ended up going with CO2 as the the big demon that they could just mathematically fit together, saying, Look, when there's temperature increases or decreases, we often find in in historical records associated changes in CO2. And they, of course, um, had to fudge the data so that people missed the fact that it wasn't the CO2. There was no evidence that the CO2 was causing the temperature because when you actually started zeroing in and looking at the actual data sets in deep historical records, it was always that the temperature would first change hot or cold. And then as a consequence, you would find an associated rise or, or drop of, of CO2. Um, so it, it was, it was uh, an innocent victim found guilty for a crime it didn't commit co2 Mm. or molecule which is like plant food plants love it humans breathe it um they made this thing become the thing we're all afraid of um and it was it's also conveniently for them something that comes out when you burn like (laughs) petrochemicals or you have industrial civilization You, you produce these things um so the ultimate idea was they they knew that well We would not democratically undo industrial civilization ourselves that would like hurt or destroy our kids. So you couldn't do it that way. You had to do it in a more sneaky way. So take a a contingent, like something that industrial civilization can't exist without, CO2, and make that the enemy. And people won't realize that they're then destroying their industries and their means of supporting themselves while they're busy looking at this, this evil molecule. And that was sort of what was decided upon. That was what they ran with. And it's been now 40, 50 years of this crap. And it's ultimately to to bring about the same sort of self hate, a society that hates itself. Can't love freedom. Can't fight. Mm. So that's one advantage of having, um, you know, eco, um, or or basically, um, people walking around with, with shame and guilt for being human viruses. You, you create, uh, on the other hand, um, those people, you know, those, those useful wannabe above grounders like a Yuval Harari or, or others who are like, "Yeah, finally, I can do something about this. I can be part of the establishment." I get, and I'm being invited into these, so mm-hmm. I, can, I can be part of the solution in an official way. And then also, you, like you know, I just mentioned, you got the extinction rebellion fools and useful idiots who then are just gonna, you just let them go, and they're gonna organize in destructive ways on their own. And uh, meanwhile, people people aren't paying attention to the fact that, yeah, th- those like Bill Gates, who are, are virtue signaling, you know, green eco warriors, uh, or Jeff Bezos, same thing, or Branson, uh, they're all also uh, creating new mining organizations that are trying to dominate all of the minerals and rare earth resources of Africa and, and Congo and Zambia. Uh, like uh, I think it's called uh, kybal- kybald, um Mining, founded by Bill Gates. This is at the heart of of what's using tens of thousands of child laborers in super precarious situations in in, in Congo, mining cobalt. Um, they're they're using child labor. They're forcing massive environmental uh, regulation, to, or they're they're destroying what little environmental regulation protecting water systems, forests, and other things. All of that is being destroyed because they demand it be destroyed in order to make Africa more business friendly, um, which is essentially a giant poverty stricken slave colony by design under these Mm -hmm. sort of green uh, virtue warriors. I mean, it's it's the level of hypocrisy is huge because they don't believe what they're saying. They know ultimately that the world is not warming because of anything humans are doing. If anything, we're going into an ice age. That's why Jeff Bezos has his his built you know, hundred million dollar villa in the the, the the areas of these little islands in Barbados that he's bought, which is which are supposedly gonna be underwater according to the models that he's funding. So why are you buying these like you know villas in that area? Like do you just not care about your villa? No, you you know that you're lying to people and you're happy to use Africa like the, 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 the Nazis wanted, like a giant slave colony, and you want to do the same thing to Russia and to China again. So.
0: Yeah, it seems I think I I overheard you say this one time, Mali is the model. And it's interesting to me, but more than, more than interesting to me, it's, I think it's interesting for a different reason. Like to what end, like to what end are people doing? Is it, is it just a lust for power? If you can look back at history and something you've done is you've researched it so far back. There is this pattern of people just going out of their way to stop industrialization, to take advantage of people and to what end, like it, it, if you base something on a lie, like carbon, you know, in, in global warming is a, a, a lie to everybody. Everybody knows it, I think. A lot of people know it. So how could you have any sort of long-term model that's based on falsities? You know, I, I just, I don't understand to what end. Maybe this is why it always fails is because it's based on a foundation of lies. Like it, it can't hmm. stand, right? Dude, that's a very good point.
1: That's a very good point. I mean, I, but I, part of part of the the oligarchy, um, or what impels an oligarchy to be an oligarchy and to act this unnatural way that it does, is uh, is defiance, um, partially partially a defiance of what they otherwise know reasonably. If 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 it was just reason governing them, th- this wouldn't be an issue. But it's not. But so reasonably, they could know that they're trying to manage a a, a, a system of human beings. Um, which is a a, a creature that is a creature of dignity, of ideas, of self-identity, self-worth, creativity, and that, in fact, requires and has the capacity and has proven to be the case for for centuries and millennia to leap beyond the limits to growth by by encountering a problem in the present or even foreseeing problems in the future and Mm -hmm. acting preventatively on those by coming up with a creative nonlinear solution concept to a problem, again, present or future, which results in giving us willfully greater powers of action supporting life at a higher quality of life with greater longevity, lesser infant mortality. This happens every time we do this in the right way. So Mm -hmm. they know on a logical level that having more people is not the sign that you've done something bad or that you're a virus, but that you've done something right when you needed to. that, That is understood. But despite that evidence that they have more access to than most of us because ultimately we are we we are given history books in a way of thinking uh, that that mm. scrubs out that that hides a lot of yeah. this evidence or distorts it in such a way that we don't understand it. But they, I mean, if you're dealing with an oligarchical grand strategist, no, you certainly have enough evidence at your disposal to know that this is exactly what human beings are. But they're compelled by something even more powerful inside of the the cultural systems that the oligarchy. Is themselves governed by, because you got to keep in mind the oligarchy is themselves. What are they? Are they like all sovereign self identities? Is every Henry Kissinger who's even himself just a upper level manager? He's not a decider of of much. But you know, if you're if you're actually in a in a closer degree of association with a deciding causal nexus within oligarchical systems, are you yourself a sovereign person, right? Who wakes up? Clean, with a clean conscience, living your life in an, in in the way that's you're making your own decisions willfully, on behalf of desires you actually have, not really, not really. Because if you look at like the way they have to groom their own children, yeah, the type of experience that is created over many generations to make sure or to in, enhance the potential that the children of the the upper upper echelon elite are going to de- develop certain very unnatural sets of identities and passions that have to be associated with shape your identities, right? There's certain like distorted passions that you have to take pleasure in, mm. which are all unnatural. You have to do certain things to those kids, which yeah, you kind of, your heart kind of breaks thinking about like what Prince Philip Mombatin could have been, you know, when he was two, three years old, if he was just, just given authentic love and a good education and, and, you know, family upbringing, if he could have been something great, you know, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. He was born into an oligarchical family that didn't give a shit about his soul and wanted to turn him into like a clone of them, of his of you know his 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 own uh, cast. So <clears throat> you could say that in many ways. And and Edgar Allan Poe is one of the greatest guys mm. to um, diagnose the psychological uh, mindset and heart of an of uh, an oligarch. Um, he does it really well in his uh, Fall of the, the the House of Usher. Anybody who wants to understand the psychology of, of uh, oligarchs really, really effectively, and ultimately their own defiance of natural law and their own ultimate self-destruction, read The Fall of the House of Usher, short story, it's really good, uh, read uh, The Mask of the Red Death, he, t- he takes it another angle, It's another really good Edgar Allan Poe uh, diagnostic, and a lot of his um, his little mini um, short stories regarding, like, the The Imp of the Perverse. Mm. or uh, even the black cat, what he's doing is he's taking you into a psychological deep dive into the nature of um, f- I- identities who are unaware of themselves and are capable of self deluding and are otherwise known as other directed. They're not inter-directed; They're other directed. Mm. So it is, it is your family structure. It is the, the oligarchical class structure itself, which has created a momentum that demands you take on certain attributes in order to live up to the expectations that are being put on you as you're born into this thing and are expected to manage it for the next generation and beyond according to certain ideals and, fa- and passions. So, I mean, to, it's, it's a convoluted way of me saying uh, the answer to the question that you threw up, but it's it's important because it's it's got many dynamics, but what do they ultimately want? They want a delusion. They, they want to actualize a utopia, which mm-hmm. literally means no place. But they have um, a, a vision of a world that cannot be that they're committed to and a system that they're wishing to control that isn't the way they wish it to be, that they, they demand it to be, despite the fact that they know it cannot be. So there's a certain built-in irrationalism here, if you, if you hear what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Because they demand that we be these automaton robots with a little bit of a mixture of animalistic, hedonistic, you know... Uh, uh, bestiality. So, robots with bestial impulses for pleasure and avoidance of pain, that's all they want us to be because that's, we, it's only by us being that way that we would, that, that their plans for the world could work. The fact is, we're not the way that they want us to be. And so, as much as they try to create cultural um, environments, like, you know, look, look, look at the types of music, the types of film, mm. the, type of cinema, the types of, um, uh, extracurricular activities, they want to encourage and normalize into their victim populations. Yeah. They're going to enhance different attributes of, of human escapism, human bestialization, human uh, addiction to sensualness, um, or maybe just robotic activity too, right. Mixed in with like, uh, you know, this, this robotic logic, you'll get people like bouncing back and forth forth you know uh of, of in the apollo Dionysus cult like i got to be an apollonian dutiful person who hates my job and works nine to five during the day and uh does all these like right looking things but then i've got my inner beast i have to satisfy when i go to the rave right i just like party and, and i go into these vacillations you know so you're nobody's at one with themselves and if you can't govern yourself then you can't be a citizen who can self-govern as part of a nation who can make decisions in democracy you can't do that you will need a zookeeper if you if you allow the the, the beasts within you to run 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 wild and you you're not you're not at ease with yourself well you will need somebody who is a zookeeper to manage you and ultimately that's what they want is for people to come to the conclusion on their own that they're not capable of self-governing because every time you give them freedom they create a mess look at globalization right we all had freedom to be a consumer society we could all consume what we wanted since the for for 40 50 years we had total freedom we were told uh and look at the mess we caused so now isn't it the case that we need a new type of post you know great reset system where we don't expect the type of freedoms to own things or to eat meat when we want to or have eggs or things like that shouldn't we like you know pay, pay our penitence now for the 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 eco sins that we committed to nature and ourselves and our future so this is where you get like the type of, of religious like glazed over eyes of like a Greta, you know? <laughs> Who's like,
0: How dare you!
1: It is it right? It's like it's very authentic. Um, that level of like anger and hate because we we didn't. It's true. It's true in a sense. Like we we created, we allowed for a dynamic that was unnatural to corrupt us, to normalize corruption and mediocrity for decades. Which resulted in a selfishness that resulted in us becoming more and more addicted to sweatshop, cheap labor, child, child labor in Africa, other things to feed our dollar stores. That happened. We we destroyed we didn't maintain our infrastructure. That's all now in atrophy and decaying. That's like we literally sacrificed the unborn generations who are now like kids, right? They have every right to feel angry. And so, but the, the, the trick was they got us to do it ourselves and they, and they got us to, they, they, proj- they projected elements of the oligarchical way the, the Tao of the oligarchy right onto us. So the useless eaters that we're told we have to manage as part of the, you know, the post great reset world mm-hmm. using drugs and video games, like Yuval Harari said, it's actually that useless class is not us really. I mean, we made ourselves, we allowed ourselves to become a useless service society consumer class, but that wasn't our nature. It's the oligarchy who is the useless class who doesn't learn real world skills.
0: Mm-hmm. They don't.
1: They don't do anything or contribute anything useful. Uh, in society, but they they project that and got us to, to to take on those attributes of oligarchism, which could then only be resolved out of like the chaos that would naturally occur could only be resolved by order from a leviathan from from some zookeepers from above who would be who would come in the way H.G. Wells talks about in his. Uh, what was that what was
0: that uh, the oh, time oh. machine with the Morlocks and the Eloy
1: I was thinking of that one I was actually thinking about the uh not the world set free um he did another one oh, I forgot. They, made, they made it into a movie uh,
0: war of the world was he war of the worlds oh
1: he was that too but he did this uh oh, I'm forgetting there was this movie with the the sky people like it was ah, it, it was made into a movie in nineteen thirty four or thirty seven um
0: what was the premise of it?
1: The premise of it was it's, it's a world war, a world war is about to slam into humanity. We we never get to know why, but we basically destroy ourselves. Then we've got about 60 years of plague, um, and, uh, and destruction. We go into a dark age, but there is the scientific Mason Freemasons, the Freemasonic scientists, the, the sky people who were able to create sort of, um, a a breakaway civilization Mm. on an island where they were able to save and preserve the best of science. And they preserve the ability to fly with planes and everyone else had lost the ability to fly. And they forgot how that works. And, uh, towards the end, you know, like the sky, people who are just these like, um, oligarchical human, like they're, they're obviously misanthropic. They don't care about humans, but they come in and they save everybody by bringing in the, the planes that destroy the sovereign nation state. And you have like this guy wearing feathers, this, like British guy with like feathers and a big giant like fur coat he's like I'm a sovereign nation state what are you doing here you can't invade me you know and he has like one like World War one like air- aircraft or something that's like his like secret weapon and they have he's like, I'm gonna deploy my aircraft on you and and like this one little uh stupid aircraft gets obviously annihilated by the giant fleet of these 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 super beast like airships right that bring about a one world government uh, Shape of Things to Come. My my wife overheard me. That's it. Shape of Things to Come. Yes, baby. Okay. Uh, Yeah, sorry. That's all Uh, right. The the volume up a little bit. Okay, so, uh, yeah, people have to watch The Shape of Things to Come online. They can go on on YouTube, I think, and even find the film for free to watch. Uh, Very useful psychology. Um, But that's it. I mean, so the oligarchy wants to create a world that cannot be. They want to create a utopia. It's... it's, um, the only way to get to it is to ultimately force humans to think that we're fish, to breathe on, un- to think that we have to breathe underwater. But the consequence is a lot of dead humans and ultimately a lot of dead oligarchs because the oligarchy, when they kill as a parasite, which is what they are, mm. they ultimately also end up uh, doing themselves a lot of damage too. And that's the case throughout history. You can't understand anything about history if you don't recognize this quality of the oligarchy that parasitically destroys, even if they don't really want to. It's like, do you think that they 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 wanted Rome to collapse? No, they didn't. They wanted Rome to be the forever empire. Um, they couldn't do anything but, though, cause Rome to collapse by virtue of that, that host taking on the attributes that they demanded it take on for their pleasure. And as a consequence, they had to, like, you know, it took them several centuries to sort of re to to reorganize themselves, try to rebuild to whatever degree they could in a new location geographically and they just like migrated but ultimately it's a it's a defiance of god it's a defiance of natural law it's it's, um, it's an ideological cult um, that is committed to a concept that they know is not true but they're committed to it anyway of death and death and darkness being the ultimate uh center of causation of of the universe they believe that 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 death that decay that the universe the multiplicity of that we see within the universe, right? There's, there's obviously different qualities, different quantities within the universe, but it's still one, one verse, right? Hence the name universe that came out of Pythagoras. There's, there's a oneness that organizes all the parts, all the seeming uh, anomalies, the, the oppositions, right? It's all unified under a one theme, but what is the theme? Is that oneness going to be life or is it going to be death? Is it going to be creativity or is it going to be hate and despair? So they're committed to their resolving of the many into the one by a death principle, a decay, you know? It takes on different, like, there's certain pseudo-scientific language. But if you, like, read an issue of Scientific American, you, you know, you hear standard model uh, cosmologists talking about, um, you know, the eventual ne- necessary heat death of the universe that is our destiny. Well, that's what it is. It's not really science. They're basically just telling you they've extrapolated certain, certain um, trends, that they perceive in the present into the future, and it's they've come to a consensus um, that the universe is going to be in a in a in a total heat death in some trillion years or whatever. So ultimately, existentially, what's it all? What's the, what's the point? They've proven that there's no soul. We're just the the sum total of our, our molecules and our, our atoms. Uh, there's nothing transcendental. Um, you know, that, that's what I was saying about the, me- the mechanic idea of like dropping the book, right? They they've got so many people to think that that's science. That we forgot mm-hmm. that, no, there is this transcendental quality of these eternal concepts, universals, uh, concepts of justice, of freedom, of the soul that knows these universals that must be more than the finiteness of my body, which is temporal and and always changing. There's something non-changing as well that allows these types of conversations you and I are having to even happen. So the oligarchies, they, they hate that. And so, yeah, they're 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 in it for delusion. that's really it. Uh, and they're worshiping at the God at a at a God that doesn't exist, but they but they are acting like he does. um, so they're they're satanic. they're they're the thing that they worship because they are satanic. um they they my my point when people say, like, oh, you don't believe necessarily in in the force of of Satan as a force an actual force of evil. I'm like, no, i I don't believe in Satan as an actual force of evil in the universe. I don't. But I believe in free will and I believe in bad ideas. We have the freedom to have bad ideas and freedom to create bad institutions. And the effect of the belief in Satan does exist and it does cause damage historically Mm -hmm. and will continue to. Um, The oligarchy certainly believes it. They act as if he he does exist. (laughs) And uh, and that's dangerous because they're willing to do a lot of bad. They're willing to blow up. They're willing to burn the earth rather than serve in in heaven, you know?
0: Let me ask you this, Matt. Like, so like i'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute and i don't necessarily believe this but i think it might be another avenue and, and i mm. don't know so i'm a i'm a ups driver and i a lot of times i act as the shop steward to represent other drivers when there's problems and stuff in there mm. and um dude there like I like what I do, and you know, working for a multinational corporation, in my opinion, sometimes gives you a window into the way the world actually works. Mm. And it seems to me the people that are at the board, the CEO, and upper division management, they've reduced people to numbers. And when you look mm. at somebody like a number, it's really easy to strip away their humanity. And you just say, mm. oh, well, 072 isn't performing. Let's just get rid of them and put in 097. And so a lot of times what happens is, I'll talk to a driver who's having a problem with like productivity or something like that. Like apparently he's not putting up good enough numbers to get the bonus for the people that, you know, that they see upstairs. And so I'll sit down with the guy and I'll be like, look, what's going on. Oh, well, here's, I have these seven problems, you know, first off my child's sick. Number two, the amount of work they're asking me to do is unreasonable and the amount of time they want it to do. And so I will sit down and I'll prepare an argument for this guy to go in and talk to the management that want to fire him because he's not working fast. And so sometimes I'll take a day or two to figure out like the best argument. Like you guys are seeing this person like a number. How dare you? Do you have a family? You know, why don't you see him as an individual? You know, you, you know, a squared plus B squared is C squared. That's what you're saying. You want C squared, but you're not counting F and G you're not counting all the variables in the equation. So you're not going to get C squared. And so you know, sometimes I'll prepare that argument for like two or three days and then I'll get ready to go and fight for the guy and he'll come to me like, you know, what? I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to fight. I don't want to sit down in front of these guys. You know, I talk to them. It's okay. And they make this deal. And after a while, as like a shop steward, it becomes pretty disheartening because I'll be like, no, you have to fight for this. Like, this is something that matters to not only you, but your family. You mm-hmm. must fight this because you're standing up for your family. When you do this, you have to do it. Oh, I don't want to do it. I'm afraid. Okay. Okay. And, you know, once or twice, not too bad, but seven, eight times. And then all of a sudden the manager becomes to me like, look, George, what are you doing, man? Like these guys don't, they don't, it doesn't matter. Like we've, we figured it out. And I'm like, no, you didn't figure it out. You just bullied them. You treated them like a piece of garbage. How dare you do that? I I hate that. But on some level, you know, then I begin seeing the, the union guys ahead of me striking deals with the upper division management. And it's so disheartening to me to see that happen. And then mm-hmm. I put myself in the position of someone who's at upper upper management, and I go, "Fuck, man!" On some level, I begin seeing, like, yeah, we we don't like it either, George. But what are we supposed to do? Like, there's there's a there's a you know, fifteen thousand drivers here. I'm sorry that these handful of guys aren't working. They are good people, but we're just gonna cut them because it's better that way. And you know what must it be like? For someone who's born into one of these old world families, like what must it be like for them to be handed the managerial reins and say, look, this is how it is? You know, maybe it's not that they worship Satan and wanna destroy everybody, but maybe it's like, fuck. And and I'm not a greater good argument guy, Matt, but like maybe there's something to be said about like statistics that you and I don't get to see. What do you think? Is that like, Mm. and that's just a devil's advocate. You know, I I don't know that, but what must it be like for that? Yeah, no, it's
1: definitely a useful exercise. And I, I like anomalies. I like, I like, I like looking for anomalies that sort of deviate from a norm. That's usually where the, you're going to find the mind, uh, the, the most mind food in those places of singularity. So, It's a good exercise to think, Okay, well, we know that there's a certain set of normative behavioral traits that are encouraged and cultivated by design within the oligarchy. And there's certain Mm -hmm. behavioral norms and traits that are cultivated by design within the broader um, uh, slave families. The majority are are expected to be, you know, maintain, maintain themselves as as a slave family, lower caste. And then you, got, you got like Aldous Huxley gets at in his Brave New World, you know. You got alphas, alpha pluses, yeah. you got some data, yeah. some managers, lower level managers, all the way down the chain of command. Um, but then, like, where does it break down? And I and I, I find it interesting. Like, I know that one thing that's that's uh, an anomaly in more recent times is the the I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, which Dupont was it? But one of the more recent Dupont, mm. um, who was the heir of the Dupont dynasty, um, ended up. Um, he 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 got married in the 80s, and the best man and woman at his uh, at his marriage were Lyndon and Helga Larouche. He was recruited because he had read um, some of the uh, the EIR, the Executive Intelligence Re- Review material, in the in the, when he was a student, and uh, in the 70s, early 70s, and he was recruited to become a member of that organization. He started like bankrolling, like providing. Uh, some of his his money that he was allowed to access before he got the full inheritance, he started giving it to the 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 LaBruche magazine and and helping to to you know for the researchers to carry out research. And all of that's bad. Like that for from the standpoint of like an oligarchy, because his family has certain uh, expectations of of him, you know, and, and his family is like a little mercenary dynasty family. Um it's been like that for a few generations. So for somebody to go off the reservation of his caliber um and from his cast, upper level manager cast, that was not acceptable. There was a lot of psychological warfare operations there and I, I mean, I, I heard stories. I'm not gonna go through that. It was a crazy period to try to pull him back into the thing to suck him in. and I think it actually ended up succeeding unfortunately. Um, mm. but that was the th- that's an anomaly. So it, it happens, right? Hum- they're still humans. humans are humans. Um, they're still gonna be yeah. they're still gonna resonate to human ideas. Um, I got the case of George King George the third. Uh, of Hanover, yeah. the king uh, who presided, who was the presiding king over the American Revolution. Uh, I, he's an interesting case study. Is he evil? No, he's not evil. He's not evil. He actually was friends with um, um, Benjamin West. Who was Benjamin West? Benjamin West was Ben Franklin's Philadelphia. He, he was a, a, a painter, probably the greatest painter of his age, born in Philadelphia in like the 1730s. Benjamin Franklin recruited him; was his early patron, discovered he had talent, made sure he had his, he had as many opportunities to really like grow into his talent, and positioned him in a in a in a place in the early 1770s in Britain where he became a founding member of the the the, the Royal Academy of Fine Arts. And by the by the time the American Revolution rolled around, he was the president of the British Royal Academy of Fine Arts. His son, the the, the godson of his, uh, the godfather of his son was Benjamin Franklin. He was a devout Republican. He loved he loved the ideals of America, but he was also the exact same age as, as uh, King George III. And King George III really liked him. He organized him. And he would like do court paintings and would just chat with George. And it was like just organizing George. And George was like a young <laughs> guy. He was kind of like, you know, he's born into this evil thing expected to be to oversee evil but he also really started like falling in love with the ideas of freedom and maybe human beings are actually, maybe we're all born equal after all, you know? And he started like, um, and he kept the painter West in his, in his palace uh, till late in the night, having, having philosophical dialogues. So he, um, he, he ended up becoming the crazy King, right? That's Mm. what they call him. Like crazy King George, (laughs) He, he, he was put in a sanitarium for the last 10 years of his life. He was removed from the position of, of King because he couldn't coexist with the, the the ideals of a human Mm. in his heart and the mental structures he was expected to abide by and maintain. He couldn't live with that level of, of dichotomization and he, he snapped, he totally, and it's totally lawful that he snapped Mm -hmm. the way he did. And, but there's many examples of that. Um, not as many as I would like, but they're there. Um, and so I, I mean, I believe in redemption. I believe in self-examination and the ability for somebody to, um, Feel the weight of just mm. shame, because if you've done things shamefully, you there's a reason why you feel shame uh when yeah. you go to bed at night or you wake up with a cold sweater your your subconscious is not letting you be at ease. There's a reason for that, and you can overcome it. You you know anybody can heal from that, but you have to change qualitatively something about yourself that is causing you to feel that, right? It's it's our soul talking to us, saying it's not yeah. happy with the damage we've done to it. Um, so that that I've seen evidence. I mean, I've seen no evidence that proves to me that we Till, till the moment we're dead, every single moment leading up to that moment of, of death, we can always willfully make the choice to change and to redeem ourselves, ask for forgiveness and become a human. Um, but again, it's, that humility is very hard to do, especially mm. if taught to be arrogant um, and godlike, you know, it becomes more and more difficult but it's possible. And I think ultimately I have, I have hope for the, the grandchildren. I don't have hope for the current, the current generation active yeah. today. I don't have a lot of hope for, but I think that, you know, when I look at maybe the son of, of King, uh, you know, Prince, Prince William, or maybe the son, of the grandkids, the next generations, I, I got hope for them. They might be. I think his name,
0: I think yeah. his name is George.
1: Ironically I think- so, that, would be a fun, <laughs> that would be a fun irony of history. Yeah. Okay um yeah maybe George could uh, <laughs> finally live the life that his his uh, namesake wanted to live <laughs> who knows and couldn't and you know what,
0: man, real skills you know. I, I have a question that's been burning like had you have an extensive background in a lot of different histories and I know one of them is like Russian history and I'm curious if you're familiar with a.t Fomenko's books um history science or fiction uh, no. have you read anatoly Fomenko? no tell me about him Oh man, you're going to love this. So Anatoly Fomenko was a Russian mathematician and he did some work around something called parameter D. Parameter D is the phases of moon eclipses. And there's parameter D is like this, and you love anomalies. So parameter D is this anomaly where there wasn't a particular cyclical moon eclipse in like 700 years. And Anatoly goes like, what are you talking about? Like the eclipses are like the best form of time management. And so he goes back and he uses this mathematical model to show, oh, actually the history we've been written is all bullshit. There's a guy named Joseph Scalinger who wrote down like a really enormous chunk of history. And it brings into the the his one of his analysis is isn't it weird that there was a dark ages in the Enlightenment and then there was a dark ages in Rome, and like he his thesis is that there's a missing 700 years and that the dark ages were in fact the Roman ages, and like I, I know that sounds crazy, but if you just start if you read like his books like he puts out some pretty good evidence that this could be true. And because you have such a incredible background in history, I was just curious if you had thought about it or researched it or I've made some actually pretty awesome videos on it. I can send them to you. Okay, well maybe I'll um I just I just found it on Amazon. It's a bit expensive, but I got it on archive.org,
1: which is okay free. So I can look at it digitally and, and have a review it. So maybe you could just tell me. So when you're saying that um according to the astronomical data that he was looking at um, there's 700 years missing at the end of the Roman empire. So what, can you maybe shed a bit more, put more meat on the bones of what exactly does that mean? Does it mean like, like we, we experienced 700 years that are unaccounted for of period where we just for like, have been induced to have a collective
0: amnesia cause it was so bad or like, what do you. Yeah. I, I think that the premise is that. That 700 years was made up in order to instill the ruling class that we have now. Like he says that there was a, a large period of pe- where people were, they were illiterate. No one knew how to read. And so the only people that could read was the church, right? And so they created like this 700 years of history that never happened. They created the, the, yeah. the they wrote the Bible. They wrote all this literature that never happened. But how would you... in, like what
1: what what would be the seven year time frame like 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 four hundred or so when the first uh, yep, invasions yep, happened in Rome a... yep. to about uh, twelve thirteen hundred after uh,
0: or so uh, middle yep. Middle Ages period. Yes, he says that the wars that happened like if you look at like the the wars that happened in the Homeric verses those are like the same as the Crusades.
1: So he's saying that the the Homeric works are actually describing
0: something that happened during the Crusades. Is that yes. What Yep. And if you look at the characters that are, um, so I'll just read you the quick synopsis of the back right here. Okay. Jesus Christ was born in 1152 AD and crucified in 1185 AD. The old Testament refers to medieval events. Apocalypse was written after 1486 AD. Not quite what you have learned in school. This version of events is more substantiated by hard facts and logic, validated by new astronomical research and statistical analysis of ancient sources, than everything you have read and heard about history before. The so-called consensual history is a finely woven magic fabric of intricate lies about events predating the 16th century. I'm sorry, Yeah, I think it's sixty-three. There is not a single piece of firm written evidence or artifact that could be reliably and independently traced back earlier than the 11th century. The archaeological, dendro- dendrochronological, paleographical, and carbon methods of dating of ancient sources and artifacts are both non exact and contradictory. The dominating historical discourse in its current state was essentially crafted in the 16th century from a rather contradictory jumble of sources such as innumerable copies of ancient Latin and Greek manuscripts whose originals have vanished in the Dark Ages and the allegedly irrefutable proof delivered by the late medieval astronomers, all cemented by the power of the ecclesial authorities. But I, I know that you, 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 as a fellow of the U- American University of Moscow, maybe you have some deeper resources you could reach into to validate some of that stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I've, uh, I'm curious. Does he talk about uh, Chinese or um, Arabic uh, or Persian um, historic records as well, or is he specifically looking at the uh, Roman Western matrix of history and and or, or is it intersectional? Does he also incorporate? Yeah, does he deal with China's? History?
0: I do, I do. I, like it's a, I'm like I'm barely. I've just finished one, and there's like five books, and they're all pretty mm. thick. But the the like the level of the level of documentation there is fascinating. You know, mm. I I don't I don't know if I have a well enough grasp of history to refute it, and from reading it. Like I think that what he is writing makes a lot more sense than what I was taught in school. Now, that's not saying very much, you know. <laughs> you know who knows what I was taught in school? But <laughs> well, yeah. Look, I
1: I I don't know. I, I'm I'm reticent. I'll obviously I'll, I'll look through the book. I, I okay. found it digitally. Um, okay. I I my approach is always to try to look at things as a as a top down chemistry first. So I never sure. look at like Canada by itself or the U.S. by itself or Europe by itself. Yeah. I try to look at like these as parts of a broader chemistry. So in that sense you know, um, what do the records say of the Tang dynasty, which has certain writers, poets, um, historical records, well-preserved. What about the Han dynasty? Um, what, what about that period? What about the, the Abbasid dynasty or the, uh, you
0: know, the, the earlier caliph? Um, what, what does that dynasty say about the, the Roman times?
1: Well, in the case of China, yeah. China's well, China has two periods that overlap. Oh, it has a lot of periods. There's several thousand years of of Chinese historic records going back to uh, the Warring States period, five six hundred BC, and and you know you got before that, um, like six different dynasties that were all vying the Qi. And I mean, there's there's a lot that have been built up, and then you had sort of the first unification of a of a nation around or an identity around the Han Dynasty. Um, which seems to have occurred a little bit in the wake of uh, of Alexander and Alexander's um, go East policy, okay. right? W- which went all the way to Bactria, like Afghanistan. They're still pulling out relics from uh, Bactria and Afghanistan and, and India, East India mm-hmm. featuring like uh, Hellenistic architecture and, and statuary. And a lot of it's been... I mean, part of the problem is that the oligarchy is, is a good is good at destruction. They like burning yeah. down libraries of Alexandria. They, they like destroying our collective memory of the past to, to give us a lot less to work with. That's, that's exactly,
0: problem. that's what he's talking about in this book. Yeah. And I, and I, like, I, you know, I think it's the Orwell quote that says he who controls the future controls the past. He who controls the past controls the present. Like if you can control right now, then you can rewrite history and control the future. Right. And like, it just seems, and, and again, like I, I am more of a truck driver than a historian but you have an extensive background and i admire the work you've done and if you could take a look at that and maybe you could come back and we could talk about it yeah that yeah, yeah let's, do that. Let's, do that. let's do it let's do it cuz me just talking without actually looking at it yeah, 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 but yeah. keep
1: in mind too i'm not a historian either i'm not I know. I never trained in history i don't i'm just kind of you know figuring things out like like you are i mean it's um but yeah i'll i'll have a look at it for sure
0: that's awesome and you know i i don't know i i know we're kind of getting closer to the to the end of our time here but let me ask you this one as well so when we look at hg wells and the morlocks and the eloys like Mm -hmm. i'm not sure which one's winning there like one of them lives underground but then they come back and they grab the eloys and eat them but the eloys have like this easy life like if hg wells is trying to say he wants to be one of those like which one would he want to be i wouldn't want to be either no he was embracing (laughs) the absurd like part of what he was doing
1: um he's He's a little bit more honest in the sense that he could embrace the absurdity. He could lean into the absurdity a little bit. Um, And he's also from a poor family, right? Like his mom was a guard or his dad was a gardener. His mom was a house servant. You know, he just had uh, he was picked up by Thomas Huxley, another person not born into any noble family. Um, Darwin's bulldog, you know, And, and he was his teacher at normal school in the 1870s in Britain. And saw that there was a spark of evil, spark of talent, <laughs> creative <laughs> flexibility in this young H.G. Wells, George Herbert Wells. And uh, recruited him, you know, gave him some tests like they always do. You know, he, he did the right thing, whatever whatever messed up thing he was expected to do, he did well. And, uh, and so he was brought into higher situations of privilege and experience, um, finding himself very quickly with the Fabian Society. And, you know, he writes his critiques, as does thomas huxley of the oligarchy that he is beholden mm-hmm. to that he wants to serve he's kind of like a proto Yuval harari is Yuval harari a thing unto himself no he wants to be a house slave he really wants mm-hmm. it he re- that's all he wants is to be petted to be cherished as um a, co- a courtier with you know that's all that's, that's it's pathetic and so he's a smarter version of Yuval harari that's what he is and um, and so he writes in his uh, in a variety of his his nonfiction works and and in his letters his critiques openly of the oligarchy's uh, weaknesses, in that the oligarchy got too complacent in their bloodlines and in their in their mm. stature and privilege during during the nineteen especially the nineteenth century, and he's like they they became too inflexible. They they lost the talent. They lost the creative yeah. powers that they once had in their in their comfort. You know, And so they became too predictable because they didn't allow for new blood, new talent to come in mm-hmm. to replenish them and to rejuvenate them, which is why in the 19th century the British Empire was on the, the descent, on the decline and collapsing while you had, as as, as we began our interview today, with a, a robust, new, optimistic, anti, anti-Malthusian spirit animating mm-hmm. the best of various cultures of the world around building rail together, building... Uh, national banking structures working together for the common good, making the pie bigger and better instead of just like fighting over diminishing returns. And so that new spirit was going to destroy the structures of, of ethics and values that the empire needed to maintain in order for its system to parasitically exist. And so HG Wells is just writing, you know, like they, they screwed up and uh, they needed young people like me. They need <laughs> people like, like, like Thomas Huxley, my teacher. Yep. Um so uh, he, he's able to diagnose through the, the veneer of his, his fiction writings. Um, the, the law, lo- he's sort of extrapolating the logical consequences of, of, of certain sets of ideas into, in his case, he goes a million years into the future. That's, that's pretty robust <laughs> where he's like the, 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 you know, the, the oligarchy will evolve into these beautiful people who are ultimately <laughs> just use, useless. They, they're like yep. the in, in planet of the apes uh who, who you know get their, their their food provided to them but then they also have to like become the food for the the workers who will yep. evolve underground into these dirty mutant warlocks and do <laughs> all of the, the industrial labor um who have to then go out and eat sometimes through their their loi harvest now he's creating a nihilistic you know, experience uh, ultimately for his viewers. That's what he's trying to do. He's, he's trying to, he's trying to convey a sense yeah. of the absurdity and thus the, the nihilism that you should expect to, to take, take into your heart as um, a victim of his brainwashing. Um, he does it in all of his works. The, the invisible man has a lot of these nihilistic mm. undertones too. Um, there's not a single fiction book that doesn't have some of this poison, these Trojan horses. He's slipping into the zeitgeist to make people more weak, Uh, more inclined to adapt to dystopic uh, political situations that should arise. So rather than, or like being a natural human who would resist, foresee the future act preventatively on tyranny before it crops up, or if it does crop up, fight it rather than that, people will more be inclined to either participate in helping that tyranny come about, or if it does come about and they didn't participate to then at the very least adapt to it without fighting. Like, like the case of, of the people that you've been trying to mobilize in in your workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the consequence of the sort of cultural field that he and like like-minded predictive programmers who took on the terrain of of, of science fiction. Um, they 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 desired that effect to be there, which we see now very virulently in most of the dystopic um, films on Netflix that we're being encouraged to watch, or Amazon Prime, or Crave, or whatever. You know, it's, it's mostly dystopic uh, like programming in, in most of the stuff. Um, at least the stuff that's produced from the West. You could find. Yeah. I would just say uh, it's interesting. I I find myself watching with my wife more and more uh, South Korean and and, uh, Chinese shows and movies now um, when we want something just to like sit back and relax with Um, it's a, it's a world, it's a totally different universe of entertainment. Mm. There's, there's almost always going to be not always, but almost always moral values embedded within the storylines. There is going to be a training of the mind of the, of the viewer to appreciate sophistication of um political systems it'll it'll help to make they're trying to make classical culture of china of of reading the classics the buddhist and the and the confucian classics they're making it cool so it's in 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 asia unlike us it's actually becoming cool to read the classics Mm -hmm. um so they're really that's part of their their fight right now in opposition to the the great reset crowd of the west that want to turn everybody into a a computer borg thing that you could just like turn on and off um and erase all of our memories of our past mm. they're they're doing they're going on a very good offensive um which we're not um I think Africa is starting to really move that way too we see like a real rejuvenation of of Sheikh Anta Diop the great African uh intellectual who did deep dive histories into pre colonial Africa his works are amazing um what's and his he, name again I'm saying um, this is one of his, uh, one of his books here is uh, there's so many of his books. Um, it's, uh, pre-colonial black Africa, ah. dozens and dozens of these wonderful books. Okay. And he goes deep into the grandeur and advanced culture that had, uh, grown in Africa before colonial powers got in there and started like consciously just destroying their artifacts, mm. their, and, uh, and this goes all the way back to deep history, you know? Um, yeah. So this is becoming more publicized. There's a lot more effort in the African school system under the African Union right now to try to promote um, his research methods. He was, he was himself a nuclear scientist. And he's like, if, if Africa can regain its, its legit pride of the grandeur that it once was before it got hijacked, um, then we would be able to immediately... Um, spring into the modern age with advanced nuclear science, space tech, advanced infrastructure that we could see would is our right. It's he saw that as as the universal universal right of all people, yep. not something that's just like Western Westerners do nuclear power and space and infrastructure. Dark skinned people they're more natural in their savage tribal state, having windmills and walking twelve miles a day to get dirty water for their their kids who they have to see die, you know, one out of five in in the Central African Republic, that's just their natural ecosystem that we have to respect and even encourage, you know, that that's a racist thing that you see coming out of people like, you know, Biden and Joseph Burrell and and Vanderlei. But but real Africans who live in Africa don't think that way. And they they, that's obviously why they um, are going east right now as far as working with China in a much more favorable way than the abuse that they've suffered from the West. And that there's a big battle over Africa, but all that to say it's cultural warfare. So in China and Africa, even in South America, where they've been, they haven't had the advantages of luxury and abundance that we've been given that made us very complacent and stupid for the past 50, 60 years. They've actually felt the real brutal force of what globalization was, no illusion. Um, So when it comes now crunch time where the system in the West is collapsing, these people who have suffered so much. Are seeing that there's finally an opportunity to have access to a better life, you know all of these things that they want. So um, Russia, China, increasingly India, um, Iran, have have created this new type of collaborative system, which is providing the means of of growing this garden where as Borrell is saying, you know, the world outside of Europe is a jungle and we are a garden and the gardeners have to go out into the jungle, which grows so fast and bring order to the jungle
0: yeah. racist, son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and- yep. uh, yeah. Do you think that like, I think, right? no, it's, it's, it's awesome. I, I, I love talking about it and thinking about it. I, um, it seems to me, it wasn't too long ago that Russia got rid of a large number of their oligarchs. And I, In some ways, when I look at China and I see them taking Jack Ma out of circulation a little bit, that seems to me to be what the West is so afraid of. Like, you know, when we see it, we see a rise in oligarchs in our country. We see these billionaires that are supplanting states and governments and even the country. It's like, okay, Elon Musk is now in charge of defense or he's you know, you're seeing Jeff Bezos in charge of commerce and you're beginning to see the curtain pulled back in the oligarchical structure of our country and it wasn't too long ago that russia was like dude get i want all these guys out of here china's putting jack ma in their way is that kind of what's going on in some on some level is that this this fight between nation states and oligarchs or is that fair to say yeah that's exactly what's happening that's totally it yeah 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 it's crazy to think about i i I, um, and maybe it's, it's been happening for quite some time, but I, I'm only really begun to notice it. Maybe it's because I've begun to pay attention or listen to some other, some people that are talking about it. And it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating time to be alive. And if we were going to leave somebody on, on a more positive note of like, what is it that we can do to make, make, make it better? I, I've always kind of gravitated towards. If you want to make the world better, try to make everybody in your circle better. Try to help them out doing something, and, and look in yourself. And if you make people around you better, you'll make yourself better and your community better. What are some things we can leave people with that might help them? You know, George, that that's probably the most solid thing that you could say.
1: Um, Thank you. Like we live in a culture of mediocrity; it is completely unnatural, but we are told that that mediocrity um, is normal and that we should calibrate our ourselves to to that world. The fact is. It is super abnormal and unnatural and anti-human. <laughs> and the reason why there's such problems with like depression, where people have like a lot of anxiety, why there's a lot of antidepressants consumed, why there's a lot of like escapism that's so mm-hmm. embraced from reality, it's because it is unnatural. It's it's you are expected you're being expected to adapt to something that you're not. So first of all, embrace that fact that it's not it's not you if you're feeling if you're feeling that off, um it's not you. it's it's the system. Um, and And like Martin Luther King gave this great speech on uh, being uh, this this fetish of w- being well adjusted. And he's like, look, everybody's talking about pop psychology, Freud being well adjusted. He's like, like you're it's not it's not something to brag about if you're well adjusted to a sick system that ah, is doing evil. That's uh, so true. You take pride in your in being maladjusted. And he's like, I'm I'm proud of my maladjustment <laughs> to this society. Yeah. Now you can actually think in a you could be more at peace with yourself and more more capable of acting to change the society as you should in some way. And and you don't have to think mm-hmm. big because a lot of people like us, ta- you know, um, I had this conversation just yesterday with Tommy, uh, Corrigan. That like a lot of people they they become um, frozen because they can only think about if I can't solve it all, I can't do anything. And it's like don't try to solve it all. Like first of all, accept what you can, what you're, what you're, what you're capable of changing. Yearn to become better so that you can lift heavier weight later. So don't you know spend your time in, in as wise a way as possible. But change what you can for now, right? So, and, and the more you go outside of yourself, the more you try to become a better communicator, the more you're, you're, you're going into discomfort zones, which are always going to be, whenever you grow, you're going to be uncomfortable because you're leaving the known, which is your safety blanket. You know, the safety mm-hmm. blanket is everything I already know and have experienced. But that's not sufficient to be a human. You always have to go into new terrain that you've never experienced. So you have to leave the safety blanket. And at a certain point, it's going to be a bit arduous at first and a bit scary, but the more you do it, the more gratifying it feels. And then you start liking it more and you start wanting to leave the comfort. You start getting more comfortable in discomfort. So you want to find a way to slowly find comfort in discomfort and in that healthy way. And that in that way, you're sort of like discovering that the universe is more ironical than you realized. It's more poetic because it's like you're, you're, you're finding ways of breaking the, the rules in a lawful way. Cause the, the rules themselves are not necessarily lawful. Some of the rules that were being set to, to standardize our, ourselves around are the cause of our destruction, right? They're so good laws versus bad laws. So to break, you, you can break, uh, rules in a, in an unlawful way, the way we see these eco anarchists <laughs> going at, you know, uh, they, they, they are correct in identifying the unnaturalness yeah. of the world that they're in. They're correct. Um, but they're they're they because they didn't discipline themselves internally they don't really understand who they are as a beautiful species made in the image of god as being a good thing mm-hmm. they only have a lot of like self-loathing well they're r- thus only forced to conclude well either adapt to become part of the above grounders and and pr- uh, you know oversee the destruction of civilization from davos or um go 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 all eco uh, blow up a, a train or something <laughs> um no, that, that's an unlawful way to break a rule, but the lawful way of breaking a rule would be to do what Ben Franklin does, you know, discover a higher law of, of electricity, a, a, which is a universal phenomenon that we see, you know, shaping the, the galaxies as a whole and the connect, the intercommunication between planets and the sun and suns and suns between um, stellar space. Um, there's all sorts of evidence of these electric currents, these Birkeland currents, mm. the intersect, the interconnectedness of our environment. And, and creating these magnetic fields as well that then modulate the flow of intergalactic cosmic radiation, which fluxes in and out shaping the environment that drives things like creative evolution in a, in a designed organized manner. Um, the very the, earthquakes and storms, mm. and volcanism and other things that we are, we've been led falsely to believe are these terrestrial phenomenon are actually being entirely shaped by forces. We don't understand from our galaxy mm-hmm. center, from the sun, from other galaxies as part of the galaxy cluster that we are just a part of with the Milky Way, and fo- forces inside of the Earth that we have no clear idea about in terms of like, well, what the hell is it? Is it some sort of a, a fusion process in the sun? In, in, sorry, mm. in the sun, but what about in the inside of the Earth? What's creating abiotic um, petroleum? What about water? What's being? What's what's going on inside the Earth such that new water is being created as well as oil? Um, yeah. what, what's going on? Is the Earth maybe expanding? Yep. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's causing the continent. Maybe it's actually not Pangaea that was once the, the home of all of the the, 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 the Earth's landmass. Maybe all of the Earth's landmass was connected together in a smaller volume of space when the Earth was maybe a smaller yep. volume at some earlier stage and has been growing that way. Yep. Do we see any evidence in the empirical data, um, perhaps of the age of the um, the, the radiocarbon aging of the, the, the ocean... Uh, soils as you go into the center of either Pacific or Atlantic Oceans, do we find like a gradient of youthfulness in the the rocks that get younger and younger until the very midpoints, and then get older again till they like go over to the the other side of the ocean? Maybe we find things like that. Maybe we find that <laughs> couldn't actually fly according to their bone structure unless the Earth's gravitational field were like one third what it is today back when pterodactyls were around. Maybe maybe that's a thing. Uh, so, maybe we might find that there's this whole way of looking at geology, a, a creative expression in the universe, biology that's in non Darwinian form, that's tied to what the entire universe is doing, um, which is being suppressed to keep us in a state yep. where we're thinking small, thinking like little, little, you know, uh, feudal mind slaves. Maybe that should be what we give our passion to and give our time to when we're thinking about, well, do I spend the next two hours, you know, losing myself on Twitter or watching brain dead crap on Netflix? Or maybe I should like. <laughs> find a cool book or watch some cool documentaries that are going to get me excited about reality. And maybe I'll find that I, 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 if I'm taking notes and doing it in a non-consumer like way, I might make some of these ideas my own and internalize them in such a way that maybe I could talk about them in a better and better way in time with other people. That makes me a better instrument of truthfulness. And maybe in the course of doing that, I find myself helping others. I find myself finding more of myself in, in helping others and being a better person so that when real opportunities should maybe fall into my lap to do something that I should be doing, I'll be qualified to take on that responsibility. Whereas right now, most people you know, I, I are good people who want just to feed their kids. They want a better future. They, don't, they, they want to avoid World War III. But if you gave, I would say, unfortunately, the majority of people in our world who are good people, an actual position in government or in some situation where they're making real decisions, they wouldn't know what the hell to do. They would probably make a mess so you want to make sure that you're qualifying yourself with good thoughts and doing good actions and associating yourself with more good people with good thoughts and good actions and see what happens you know like don't get all stressed if you can't save the world but i mean do that
0: (laughs) it'll be you'll be happier with yourself you know (laughs) that is dude that's inspiring it's well said it shines light on the imagination that every human is capable of and maybe that's why there's this false sense of scarcity maybe that's why there's this ominous world war three we're all gonna die is because we are on the cusp of a world we've only imagined you know when i see the work that you have pointed out about some gentleman that's predicting earthquakes and when i see the idea of the electric universe or purple dawn theory or the way in which the core of our world works or the expanding world or the milosevic cycle is the way in which we spin around the earth is not a circle but an oblong and like you know what? Like so much of history is fiction. It's just the stuff people wrote. And what happens when we start discovering that we are just as capable as every expert out there, as long as we're willing to put in the work, we can be the expert. We can be the person that drives our own future. We can be the person that paves the way for our child to walk down a golden pathway. We can do it, Matt. And I, am so stoked to talk to you. This conversation has exceeded all of my expectations. I'm so thankful for that. Um, Hey, have you ever heard, there's this incredible, lovely, intelligent writer that wrote this book called The Black Sun on Which the Empire Never Sets. Have you ever heard about that person? I think it's ringing a bell. It's ringing a bell. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Can you tell us more about some of the books you've written, where people can find you, what you got coming up and what you're excited about? Yeah. Uh, hold on. Okay.
1: So the, the beautiful, intelligent person, I really appreciate the little plug for my wife there. So Cynthia Chung, uh, who's a co-author with me on, on the the Clash Two America series, the book you just referenced, um, I'll send you a – do you have a copy of this? Did I did I send you a PDF? Um, no, but I'll buy one okay. from you, man. I want to help support it. Sweet. Okay. Well, I'll send you the, the PDF to download okay, it, and then I'll wanna... buy it as well.
0: Yes, sure? please do. Okay. Please. Uh, so
1: this is the, the book. She just put this out about a month ago, Birth of International Fascism and Anglo-American Foreign Policy. Um, got a little picture of the black sun there yes, setting with the yeah. obvious little swastika thing Is that the Norwegian
0: on. flag? The Norwegian Navy flag? No, oh, no, no. it's actually <laughs> the, the,
1: the Nazi, well it's becoming that increasingly, but it's
0: uh, <laughs> That's a <laughs> really...
1: Yeah. Uh, But yeah, Norway's uh, Jens Stoltenberg has been sanctioning, uh, putting Black sun of Occult uh, symbolism on the Ukrainian uh, figures who have been fighting the Russians and that they've been putting on the official NATO social media page, which she actually did some screenshots of. Um, But yeah, we can't actually sell this in Germany because you can't have symbolism that involves any memory of what the the Germans did in the past in, in present material at all. It's like illegal to talk about nazis and even anyway, anyway it's weird so uh yeah that, that's a, a crazy sick read um really really thorough research a lot of new discoveries that i don't i've never seen anybody do which ties all the way into jfk's murder and and beyond um so yeah that, that's a book um if you want to ever talk to her i'll, I'll give you her email you could definitely I'd love sure, to I'm super happy to chat with you and um yeah, if people want to pick up this book or, or any of our books, they can go to CanadianPatriot.org. Mm-hmm. There's links there to either buy the PDFs or you can we, we're unfortunately selling the hard copies on Amazon because they just make it so damn easy. But I gotta find an alternative at some point. And if you want, yeah, we were doing the signed copies, but honestly, we're it's too much work. Uh, so uh, but yeah, do that. And otherwise, if they want to get a subscription, you can get free PDFs if you get the paid subscription to our Substacks. Um and mm-hmm. I'll or, and, you know, it's like 50 bucks a year along with like free uh, lectures because we do weekly lectures, weekly workshops on Plato's uh, uh, dialogues that we're working through. And we've been doing all of this for about three years. So if people want to be involved with those things or just listen in, ask questions to our our various, you know, expert speakers, um, they could just get the paid sub paid upgrade. Or if you can't afford it because the economy is shit, I get it. Mm. Send an email to info at rising and we'll put you on the on the mailing list. What is Info? What is Rising Tide? Right. So um, it's more of a cultural educational website that my wife and I set up in 2019. Um, And yeah, it's risingtidefoundation.net. They can look at the About Us section. We're basically, it's it's focused a little bit more on, on less geopolitics, though there is a bit of that, and more the question of like the recapturing the classical standards of excellence that have been destroyed in our school system and also looking at culturally what was the greatest moments of various other cultures within either Africa or China or India or uh, Russia or anywhere. What are those moments of universal beauty that expressed itself in their own beautiful, unique ways in various cultures so that we could know what we want to talk to and bring out in our neighbors and also see as something that's very similar to, to, to ourselves, mm-hmm. which is the best cure for um, crusaders. So the, the when when you have social engineers who want us to think in a more crusading fashion about going to war with our neighbors because they're different from us that 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 all of that only works like hey china's sending uh military balloons at us yes let's give our support to the war (gasps) with china you know (gasps) this only works because people are ignorant as shit about chinese culture civilization the chinese identity they just don't know and so with that ignorance it's a Mm -hmm. fertile soil for cold war paranoia and and weaponization of idiot people who, who are just you know products of the school system yeah. so the rising tide foundation is designed to sort of like take the fuse out of those ignorant bombs and uh you know uh, do it with knowledge so
0: it's beautiful it, it yeah. is beautiful uh, one thing I, I i we didn't get to but it may be, i have fun thinking about this and I, I wanted to give you this little pearl to maybe you could think about it I Maybe mean, next time we talk we talk we could talk about it but what do you think um what do you think uh Plato would think about Carl Jung's work on the shadow. Just something to think about. And maybe we could talk talk about that next time. I'll I'll say a word about that. Okay, yeah.
1: um, He would not approve of Carl Jung's work on the shadow. Why not? Because Carl Jung um, did did not want to. Plato has a story of the charioteers um, that we have. Sort of like two horses. One horse represents a, a certain function of, of the human um, desires and drives, and the other force represents another, uh, often opposing desire. And a good and then there's the charioteer. Then there's the eye, that is control, supposed to direct and improve the behavior of both uh, horses so that they they don't fight each other but actually work together yeah. with their different attributes. And, uh, <clears throat> the, the point of the self-examination process that Plato demanded upon all students who would enter into his academy, which involved a deep immersion into constructive geometries. And he made the point, let no, let no, let no one enter here who has not mastered geometry. Yeah. He doesn't mean mathematics. He means geometry and he means also astronomy. And, and he lays it out in the quadrivium, the, 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 the schooling structure that he lays out in the, the, the quadrivium system, right? Health of body, mind, and soul, right? Music, astronomy. Constructive geometry and uh, physical work. Um, so you 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 need to create a, a, a situation because why? Why does he value geometry? And he says in his in, to his students in the academy, um, no one is qualified to start philosophizing about metaphysics and justice before they master this domain of space time of of mastering the 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 nature and structure of space time, both outside of themselves, but also simultaneously. You come to realize. It's also' you're, you're discovering how your own mind works when it's making simple discoveries of reality. so you're, you're discovering any you know whether you're doubling the square right. in the Mino dialogue or whether you're working on discovering the the physical reality shaping the the shadows of number in the form of the Thetatus dialogue that goes mm-hmm. through like the different species of square numbers you know uh, one, four, nine, 16, 25 onward. so you got the square number species but then you have the oblong numbers, the six, the eight, the 10, you know, numbers that can only be divided into shapes that have like, you know, two different sides for a, for a, a rectangle. Mm-hmm. So two, two and five make 10, right? Two and, and four make eight. So you have those, but then you have another set of numbers called the, the primes, which are the, and that can only be divided by one of themselves. So they're like the, the they have a very a, a different identity, but Plato and Pythagoras, because Plato is a Pythagorean, are not numerologists the way their their enemies and rivals have painted them. The, the People say, oh, Pythagoras believed all truth was in number. Plato believed all truth was in number. No. They believed that number itself was the shadow of physical reality, qualities. So that all of the numbers, every number that exists is one of those three uh, families, right? That I just pointed out. Oblong, square, Oblong square prime. prime. Yeah. Um, and, and from there, when you're using math, when you're using um, fractions or anything, you're thinking... In a, if you're a healthy person who's made those discoveries, you're thinking <laughs> about the physical reality of like, you're thinking like a, a cube, a cube uh, square uh, relationship, like the, the planetary systems of Kepler's harmonic law, right? Mm-hmm. He discovers that there's a, there's a relationship between the, the square of the period of all planets relative to the mean distance of the, the cube of the mean distance of their distance to the sun has a certain relationship, the square cube relationship that is constant amongst all of the planets in our system, which has found itself to be true even as new planets were discovered that he didn't know about. Probably also going to be true around other planetary systems uh, uh, in other uh, star systems that we have not yet discovered. So when you're doing that, you're not just thinking about the number two and the number three, you're thinking about the square and the cube. You're thinking about, right, a 1D, a 2D, and a 3D space-time. But you've discovered it, and then you've applied it. So you're discovering how your own mind works, such that when you now go into the domain of discussing politics, uh, freedom, justice, you're going at it with a strong foundation of discovery and the unification of the inner universe and the outer universe. So as you do that more and more, as he points out in the, in the amino dialogue, you are helping others, right? You're to cause what is virtue in the amino dialogue? The whole thing is about like, well, what is virtue? Is it this or is it this? And, um, <clears throat> And it's quickly, pr- he never gets, gives you a final answer, but he's taking you through several experiences yeah. in, the, in the Mino dialogue of an unvirtuous person who's self not self-aware in the form of the, the slave master Mino himself. He takes you through a young person who has a lot of beautiful potential and is more creative than the slave master, the, the, the slave boy, who actually doubles the square. But more importantly, he takes you through the process of virtue as a, a living reality, which is teaching and helping others, giving of yourself, because you want to awaken the good inside of the child. You also want to awaken the good inside of Mino. He's he's trying to tease Mino into making a discovery because he knows that there's, that you're going to discover more of the good of what you are when you're proud that you can do something that is universal and true. But Mino is incapable of doing it. He's even insulted that he's being like pulled into it. But the kid <laughs> who is totally like no arrogance, total humility, very fertile soil, and he does it. And, and is so happy that he does, and it's this. It's again this. What is virtue? It's not a thing that can be defined. It's it's about the process of giving, receiving, sharing. And as you do, your horses come into alignment. Your desires, what you want and what you think, are increasingly marching in. Are working together, and the charioteer is not forcing behavior onto the different sides that are at war with each other, but the charioteer has. Like, like, you know, Plato says in the, in the, in the um, Gorgias dialogue, mm-hmm. if you're not master of yourself. Someone else is going to be master of you. So you have to take responsibility to master yourself, to, to be, um, un- undominated by your inner beast, by making, not making your inner beast die, not making it become something unnatural, but domesticating it so that it serves you. It serves you what you, your soul desires as being a good and healthy soul. So in that sense, all of the, the the forces of the basement in in the Carl-Jungian language yep. of the shadow world are not something that you're necessarily like using the dark forces. You're not channeling the dark forces to serve you. You are transforming the dark forces themselves so that they're not dark forces. You're you're not there there won't be the the subconscious elements within you underlying, bubbling under the surface are not going to be something which just bubble out of your control, out of your free will's influence or out of your own uh, conscious self's understanding. They're increasingly coming into, into harmony. Um, your dreams are going to be increasingly also shaped by the good, by the true, not by darkness um, in that sense or anything of the sort. So all of the parts are coming in alignment. And I think in the, in the Carl Jungian world, I mean, why was Carl Jung... You know, he saw himself as a messiah figure. He, he was participating in overseeing sex orgies in the Black Forest. Um, why was he doing these things? Why, you know, what the fuck was going on in, in, his, in his mind and heart that he thought that that was like a natural way of expressing his, his inner freedom? And like, what, what the hell is up with his relationship with Otto Gross? The, 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 you know, at, at Monteverita, which is this Luciferian commune. At the center of so much messed up evil throughout the 20th century, what what the hell was Otto Gross? Who was his 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 mentor in many ways? He says so. This guy is a psychopath who, like you know, drove his, a couple of his his leading um, patients into committing suicide because he's like, no, your, your life is better off just you ending it here, and he gave them poison to kill themselves. And uh, like, why did why did he think that that was like a good a good therapy? You know, and there's a, a, a recent movie uh, which is not entirely untrue. <laughs> About the the auto-gross young relationship that came out in Hollywood. I forgot the name of the movie now, but people can find it. Um so you know, I think that there's like artificial dualities, kind of like what I got mm-hmm. out of an article on Keynes versus Hayek, as a fake, as a fake debate between artificial, mm-hmm. like, you know, are you bottom up or are you top down? Are you about the emotions or are you about the mind? Um, artificial dualities to resolve the one and the many that have been put onto us to keep us uh deflected. And I think in the case of like psychoanalytical world the young versus freud debate um is is another one of these expressions of politically charged artificial dualism Mm -hmm. which disrupted the a healthier platonic resolution because if you want to look at the at somebody who plato would be happy with as far as like modern psychoanalysts of the modern world you you want to look at people who loved and used the platonic method like um the 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 first generation gestalt psychologists and i'm here i'm talking about specifically. Wolfgang Kohler, Max Wertheimer, uh, Kurt Kofka, first generation, because the second, third generations of, of Gestalt psychologists became completely dominated by the Tavistockian New Age mm. uh, clique of Lucifer. So, but go to the first generation, read um, uh, Wolfgang Kohler's uh, A Place of Value in a World of Facts, or his uh, his, he wrote a book called Gestalt Psychology, it's so good. And the whole point is that they're using the Platonic method. They're they're saying, okay, well, not how do we make better adjusted people? How do we deal with resolving neur- neurotic disorders? They're not doing that. That is a consequence of their work, but that is not what they're doing. Whereas I think like Freud and 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 Young are, are doing putting too much emphasis upon that and the behaviorist school as well, which is another like false false artificial branch of B.F. Skinner treats human beings. Hmm. Like Another artificial like polarization, but they're saying, okay, well, what is the mind and what is it designed to do? That's their question. Right. And then we could see what is it in society that is, as far as social structures that is prohibiting the minds of our patients from being able to express what the mind is designed and yearns to do as its nature is, is designed to do to be creative, to discover, to apply its discoveries, because, and they're looking at things like visual illusions. How does the mind in this, how does the mind sense relationship work? Um, what does that give us as an insight into how discoveries are made? What about metaphor? What about allegory? These nonlinear uh, parallels, you know, that'll, uh, that, that's the heart of poetry, part mm. of science, right. you discover a concept and you got to figure out how do you wrap it into something of the, the concept is an immaterial idea, right? It's got no form to it. It's just an idea, but now you it doesn't work if you can't communicate it to other, other minds in the world, past or future. So you have to wrap it metaphorically around images, symbols, other things that are infused with meaning and are then allowed to be communicated. But it only works best if people understand what your mind was doing and not simply worshipping the formula that you've just created as a symbol. Otherwise, they, you just right. make a bunch of monkeys. Right. So in, in the work of Krifka and, and, and Wertheimer and and, and, uh, and uh, Köhler, they're all looking at case studies of what were creatively potent people doing at the moment of Eureka's. How did they transform those Eurekas into action? How did that change their free will? What does free will play in the process of uh, of new ideas? All of this stuff. So that's the right place. Plato would be happy with that approach, but that got derailed. It got absorbed, co-opted by the enemies of of humanity who were busy doing the shit that that my wife writes about in his book. Uh, (laughs) But you can read them. You can still, their writings are sometimes a bit expensive because there's a lot of work to like not to, 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 destroy to make unavailable uh, their books that haven't really received printing after the 1950s so they're rare sometimes you gotta pay a lot of money but it's worth it and if you can't archive.org is still available with scans of most of their works that you can read on digitally Um, but yeah those those guys were solid
0: do you think that's a good place to start? as a place of value and a world of facts? Is that, what yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay. It's,
1: a, it's a short book too. So good, so essential.
0: Yeah. And what What would be like after I finish that one? What would be a next step from that one that would be a good follow-up? Uh, Max Planck's uh, long hmm. essay, which is also it, it's not okay
1: that that it's not that long at all. It, it's it's uh, but it's called uh, his philosophy of physics. Okay. And keep in mind, Kurt Wolfgang Köhler was the student of Max Planck, and Max Planck challenged his students to resolve the new problems that were emerging in the quantum domain around the 1890s uh, as Max Planck was pioneering this whole new domain of looking at you know, the, the stuff of atoms and photons that we hadn't been able to properly think about. He opened up, and, with the help of Einstein, both of them worked together to, to help put some shape on what, this, what was bubbling under the surface of the, the, the physical appearance of things, which allowed us to tap into a lot of energy with, regarding the geometries of atoms. Um, but there was a lot of paradoxes arising regarding the wave particle duality. And you know, you look at something, you, you look at a photon or an electron, you change its location or you change its 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 momentum. That makes that makes empirical data uh, observation difficult, right? So he was like, okay, it's gonna be through the domain of investigating the mind, because in Max Planck, in, in the book I just or the, the essay I just mentioned, The Philosophy of Physics, 1935, he's very clear that the only other phenomenon that we know of in this entire universe that changes when it is reviewed. Is the will itself? Because you could you could desire something that is sometimes like wrong, right? Or my feeling, yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes feel something which is wrong. I feel maybe jealousy when somebody might look at my girlfriend, and I feel jealousy, but I'm like, that's that's wrong. It, when as soon and you feel that until you think about it, and if you think about your will, you think about your your feeling. The very act of reviewing of examining your feeling or will changes your feeling or will. Mm -hmm. just like the act of looking at a photon or an electron changes its positional location. So he's like, we have to, we can't progress further until we develop a better standard of what is mind of measuring and talking about what is the mind that is the expression of something that is all over the universe, that the entire universe itself. And he, he makes this point too, doesn't seem to have any absolute objectivity in the universe. He believes that there's truth, but he's like, there's no truth In the universe that is detached from something that we would call subjectivity. And, you know, that's that's a bit of a right thing for for a modern scientist to say, but it's perfectly reasonable because he knows that there the universe doesn't exist without purpose. It does have purpose. And if it has purpose, it means that there's a, 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 a cause of purposefulness for things to unfold the way they do and not some other way. And that that implies a subjective creator some creative spirit animating all cause that we are made in that image of that spirit. And so something of, of ourselves has to be objective within us as well as subjective and something outside of us has to be both objective, but also subjective. So, and and he knows until you can get that until a new, a, a better field, a better appreciation for psychology can emerge. We won't make those breakthroughs properly in the atom or in cosmology and in, in the new domain of what was going on in other galaxies as well, which break the laws of standard uh, standard model. Uh, physics
0: yeah it's so fascinating matt like i yeah. I could talk to you for like another hour like I, I i uh this whole world of psychology and mental wellness and clinical trials and and big pharma testing for objective results and just denying any of the subjectivity like it you know it, it's I, I if I didn't have a heart out man you'd be in trouble because I would pick your brain for the like two hours and <laughs> I really I really enjoy this man this is really fun and I feel like our conversation was just starting to get even better than it was when we started man so thank
1: you hey, it's fine this is good this is good I'm, I'm I, it's rare that we can that I that I get to really just engage in this type of like idea content it was really good really enjoyed this and next time you want to do it just let me know I'm, I'm more than happy to join you and my wife I'm sure would be very happy too so I'll make sure you
0: have her uh, her email address soon okay yeah but not only that like I've been talking to like like I like, I, I, I'm a big in the world of psychedelics. And, like, I, I, I'm I, so fascinated by behavior. And I've been having these ongoing discussions about decentralizing clinical trials and, you know, why is it that you can't put any subjective information into the clinical trial? But I, I think that it would be fascinating to sit down with you and maybe your wife and some of these, uh, like – different psychologists or some of these people that are putting that are sitting with people. Like I think that that would be a fascinating discussion because I know that you have a different idea on some of the disassociatives and and what's that doing, but maybe there's some good that can come out of them too. Again, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I will reach out to you. And I really enjoyed this and I want people to read your books. I want them to go to uh, the Canadian Patriot.org, the rising tide foundation, check out your Substack forward stash. Matt Eret, and um it's a fascinating time. Thank you very much for everything and I hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks man, you too. All right, take okay. care. Bye. Okay. Oh. oh shoot. Hello everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full time for almost a year now.